From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. Before I started working for the Jesuits, I spent six years in my 20s and early 30s as the social justice and pro-life director for a Catholic diocese. I gave a bunch of talks at churches in this role, usually on Catholic social teaching, but pretty much any time I'd open the floor to questions about the church's tradition of welcoming migrants or promoting human life and dignity, someone would raise their hand and ask me about their own child or grandchild, about my age, who had stopped going to church. What could they do about that? Why had I stayed? And not just stayed, but devoted my career to church work. I could tell them plenty of stories about why I had stayed, but I never had much advice to offer. Just keep loving your kid or grandkid. Pray for them. If someone is going to come back to the faith, it's probably not going to be because their close relative keeps talking to them about it. Anyway, there are lots of Catholic scholars studying these questions working to figure out why young people are leaving the church and how we might more effectively keep them engaged. One of these scholars is Dr. Tracy Lamont, who's my guest today. Dr. Lamont serves at Loyola University, New Orleans, as the interim director of the Loyola Institute for Ministry, and she's assistant professor of religious education and young adult ministry. The Loyola Institute offers graduate and undergrad programs online and in person to help shape leaders in all sorts of church contexts. I loved hearing Tracy's energetic and super insightful perspectives on how we can make our parishes and school communities more welcoming, more empowering of young people. There's no silver bullet, she was sure to remind me over and over, but we have a pretty good sense of what keeps people involved in their faith. It's just up to all of us to work together to renew our local church cultures. You can subscribe to AMBG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Dr. Tracy Lamont, welcome to AMBG. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Oh, doing great. Thank you. Um, I'm excited to have you on to talk a little bit about the church and why people are leaving and what we can do. And by the end of this episode, we will have solved all of the church's problems and it will just be up to people whose job it is to enact such things that if they take what we say today and run with it, then the church will be in great shape. Yep. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> so, so there's no, there's no pressure at all. No, not that. at all. We're going to solve all the problems in 20 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So maybe we could just to establish our credentials and your credentials, you could tell folks a little bit about yourself and, uh, and what you do. Sure, sure. I uh, am the newly appointed interim director for the Loyola Institute for Ministry at Loyola University in New Orleans, um, the one in the south. <laughs> There's the one directly north in Chicago and then that's in the south, um, among others. And uh, I'm also assistant professor of religious education and young adult ministry here at the Institute. And I've been here since, I think, 2016. I, I joined the, the LIM team here. So, yeah. What are the things that the Institute is working on? Like what, what do you all do? Ah, we are a graduate program, primarily. Um, we also developed an undergrad program, but primarily we're a graduate program in pastoral studies and ministry and religious education. 
Um, and so we have a really robust method of practical theological reflection that's woven in throughout our graduate program. Um, and we offer it in just a variety of different contexts. We have it fully online, fully, fully on campus. Um, and then we also have an extension program where students study in a learning cohort um, where they live, like with their diocese or with their parish. Um, and so we've, we've, been, we've been teaching ministry leaders across the country and across the world since the 80s. And so it's a really, really awesome program that, um, you know, burst itself as a response to the signs of the times coming off of Vatican II. And we're still doing that every single day. So we developed um, an undergrad program in ministry and theology um, for kind of adults coming back that that never really finished up their degrees or, or what have you. Um, and that's, you know, been, been hitting off the road. And we also offer a variety of certificate programs too for continuing education. So yeah, we got a lot going on. <laughs> so what's like a, a cross section of some of this, like say graduate level students, like who, who are they? What are they doing? Why do they come to you? Yeah, predominantly they are ministry leaders or aspiring ministry leaders or Catholic school teachers or aspiring Catholic school teachers or, or leaders, you know, administrators. Um, and so, yeah, we get, I mean, and we also get people that are involved in chaplain or want to become chaplains that can get accreditation through NACC. Um, so you can take our program and, and also then get CPE units um, and become a chaplain. And so we have directors of religious ed, parish catechetical leaders, Catholic school teachers, whether it's not always just theology or religion. Sometimes we have chemistry, biology, math teachers in Catholic schools, um, youth ministers, young adult ministers, you know, people that are, you know, pastoral associates, um, people that are interested in ministry, what we call ministry in the marketplace. So people that just want to see how their faith kind of applies to where they, where they are in their lives, their, their jobs and in their family lives. And um, yeah, so there's just a wide, wide variety of people that are interested in their faith and, and have a good commitment to their church or their school, or their organization, um, to put into practice what they're learning about faith and life. Yeah. So your part of some of your background, a lot of your background, as you mentioned, is, is in young adult ministry and something you teach. So that's generally, at least when I hear that, I think kind of like after high school age, kind of twenties and thirties mainly, I don't know, I guess there's a lot of definitions, yeah. um, but I can tell you as someone in my thirties who also works for the church is that I've worked for the church my entire career, um, and have given talks and, uh, at churches or at diocesan things, or at any time I, I give a talk, no matter what the subject is, which often was Catholic social teaching, um, spirituality, whatever, the first question people ask, especially if they're, say, of my parents' or grandparents' age, is um, how, why, why is it you're still you know, in the church? Yeah. My grandchild, my child, my nephew, my niece yep. left the church. Yep. How is it you're still in? What can I do? Right, um, right. How'd you make it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which, again, was not the yeah. topic, but I yeah. always had to be ready to talk about that. Um, and so that was it's clearly a big question for, for folks. And if you look at some of the tr demographic trends, it seems like there a lot of young adults and say our generation uh, are leaving uh, the church or just kind of drifting away or making a hard break or whatever. Um, anyway, so this is a big topic, right? Kind of an yeah. existential question. One for the, it's an existential question for the Jesuits. It's an existential <laughs> question for the Catholic Church. How, um, what is happening? Why are people leaving? And then what can we do about it? So I, 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 maybe we could start with your understanding of what's happening. Again, we're talking like in general terms at 30,000 foot level, yeah, but yeah. Either from the data you've seen or your own experience, maybe we could start by like describing some of the issues we're facing before we then can solve everyone's problems by the end of this, by the end of this podcast. Fingers so, crossed. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. So yeah, set up the uh, the context if you could. You know, there's 
there's been a slow decline since, you know, Gen X. There's been a, since the baby boomers, you know, and, and so, you know, kind of mapping that and just seeing, you know, people today are kind of looking at the church kind of hemorrhaging with young people, you know, like they're really, really leaving. But but let's be real clear that this is not, this isn't brand new. This has been happening for some time. And the, the reason I emphasize that is because the response from church leaders is still too slow. You know, it's still not quite as responsive as we hope it would be, because this has been going on for some time with multiple generations, not just Gen Gen Z right now, you know, and, and so that's something to take into effect. But, you know, people, you know, the, the whole, you know, the conversations of the mistrust of institutions and, you know, that, that they have so many questions for their faith that they're trying to grapple with and, or it was never presented to them with any sense of like robust flourishing, you know, Pope Francis, there's a reason why he says ministry leaders, people in the church should not be walking around like they're in a mausoleum. Like there's a reason he says that because that's what a lot of people look like. You know, when they go to church, they see that and they experience sort of not quite the vibrant faith that they hope that it would be. Um, but, you know, with all that, that's been kind of the the challenge of, I don't know, they call, you know, maybe we call this postmodernism or whatever. There's a lot of labels that we can put towards it, you know, the distrust of institutions and, and things like that. And that the church as an institution has let a lot of people down, you know, and, and but at the same time, some people have stayed. So we really have to look at the nitty gritty of all of that. And predominantly today, what we're finding, especially today with the data that's especially coming out of CARA, um, you know, is is that young people don't feel welcome in churches. They walk in, nobody knows who they are. They get dismissed very easily. They have homilies that put them to sleep or make them angry. You know, like their whole parish life itself is not, is not the most welcoming place for, for a lot of young people. Some places it is, but a lot of places it's not. You know, what they're telling us is that their, their experiences of religious ed or faith formation have been really negative, you know. And, and, you know, we even see that in the data that came out from the National Dialogue final report that says that parish ministry leaders and parents, you know, so, so we're finding that young people are leaving, you know, the, the old um, St. Mary's Press study, it's a little bit older now, but they were saying that the median age of, of people um, that decide they're leaving the church is age 13. So they're like, they're literally sitting possibly, you know, if we think about it in this way, they can be sitting in our parish programs or our Catholic schools saying, thanks so much, this isn't for me. You know, so like, we don't have to go out and find them anywhere. They're, they're in our communities, in our religion programs, in our ministry programs and saying, no, thank you. This is not for me. That's a huge wake up call for a lot of people, you know. And so to that, when they are that age, and maybe that's when they've decided that, to leave the faith, you know, their parents are just as frustrated with ministry leaders. So we have all these people that are frustrated with one another um, at the parish and the school level that in Catholic contexts that are just, you know, there's, 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 and that'll go to maybe what we'll try and do to, to kind of overcome some of these issues. But you know, people are are burned out, frustrated, and don't know how to talk to one another anymore. And so what we, and then we just have kind of negative experiences of the faith as a result of that. And so, you know, a lot of our young people said that their, their faith formation was not, you know, up to par. And that was in a variety of ways. Some of them said it wasn't, it wasn't, 
rigorous enough. Others said it was just pure indoctrination, church teaching. Nobody, nobody cared what you thought about it. Just kind of, you know, like that, that whole indoctrination piece. And so it's across the gamut of issues, you know, it's, it's not just one thing or another, you know, and so there's, so the distrust of institutions comes down very locally in that there hasn't been a reason to trust sometimes, you know, that nobody's ever really reached out and said, what do you think um, of your faith while you sit in this formation program? <laughs> you know, like what, what do you, what do you want to do with your life? What do you, you know, like where are your mentors and things like that? So we're kind of lacking in a lot of the things that we could be doing um, to try and help out with a lot of this, but really parish culture is also a a real challenge, you know, really trying to get um, an example might help if I might belabor my point here. I knew a young adult, she struggled to go to mass on Sundays because she worked, you know, she had to, she worked in service industry and, you know, her day off was like maybe Tuesday or Wednesday, you know, it wasn't Saturday night or Sunday. And so when she was able to get to mass on Sundays or Saturday nights for the vigil, she, you know, she, it was hard. She didn't go often and she didn't always know all the prayers at the right time and this and the other. So she would pull up, you know, the, the liturgies on her phone, you know, on an app on her phone. And as soon as she did that, the person, the older person behind her said, of course, the young person had to count, you know, she's on her phone, you know, and she thought, and she never went back to that church again. She's like, clearly I'm not welcome here. You know, like that's just an example to illustrate some of these statistics that we hear. And it's so disheartening when a ministry leader who works so hard to get churches to welcome young adults when something like that happens. Like you can accompany them so far and be like, oh, look, they made it to mass or they made it to this or they're they're interested, they're whatever. And then some just, you know, one small thing happens and they're like, this is why I stopped coming. This is why. This is why, like, stop feeding my narrative of why, you know. There, there are a lot of different pieces of this uh, that we could kind of talk about and, and look into. And I think of, of one maybe we could start with even like what the instruction is like. You mentioned a 13-year-old, maybe someone who's come through faith formation or what we used to call CCD in the parish. That's what I had growing up. It's public school kids, you know, who have mm-hmm. to show up. And it still seems that the the fact, like again, I've been talking about this for a long time. Oh, we need to make these more relevant, but that it seems like it's very hard for us to break out of a, a model in which it's showing up to a classroom. Yeah like maybe even literally a school classroom at a Catholic school where other kids sit during the day and you're borrowing their desk and you sit at a desk and you have a textbook Mm -hmm. and the textbook, the key themes from the chapter have been kind of set out by some standards, maybe from the bishops that like things that have to be there. So we feel like we have to cover some of this material and present it in a way that just feels like if we're trying to, if we're supposed to be talking about a life of love and beauty and community, that gives us meaning. And then we're sitting down and doing that by like reading out of a, a book. book. It just feels right, like right. a workbook. Yeah. It just feels like, but yeah, it still feels like that's where we are mm-hmm. in a, a lot of places. Um, part of the, yeah. part of the challenges with changing these models. And I, and I talk and I write a lot, you know, in my scholarship, in my teaching, in my presentations, I write a lot about this, these old paradigms of education that are just, there's more, models of curriculum development in theory than what we are given. There are so many more life-giving ways to engage in religious education that um, that we're just still doing this like objective standards, workbook, textbook stuff, you know. Um, so that's for a whole nother day. There are other educational models out there that we can be playing with that are autobiographical, eclectic, aesthetic, you know, transformative, you know, and all these things that you hope the life of faith is about. Um, but one of the things that and sometimes that helps, sometimes that doesn't, you know, people, because what happens is you you come up with this great idea as a, as a director of religious ed or a Catholic school teacher or whoever, and, you know, you're just like, oh, I want to do this. And then you're 
your boss, your pastor, whoever it is, you know, your principal comes back and says, well, what, how many people were here? What were your numbers? You know, how many, how many, how many? And so you have to go and measure people, you know, the number of people, not, not the quality of their faith development, but the quantity of the people, you know? And so the, the change is not just one person, in my experience, it's not just one person having a great idea to do something new in programming or in ministry or innovative, whatever. It's that the, there needs to be like a culture shift in what we think we're doing with, in ministry with young people and in, in education with young people. Um, you know, because one of the things I find that does help is you know, I get my students to try and share their own story. You know, if we can't um, think of our own life of faith, especially our own young adult years, every one of us, if we're over 40, we were a young adult, you know? And so what was it like for us in the, you know, youth and young adult years, like that whole shift towards those transitions where you're trying to find yourself in this, that, and the other, you know, what was that like for you? And often, you know, if I think of a robust life of faith, I'm not thinking of a workbook. I'm not thinking, oh yeah, remember that time I filled in that word search with the word Jesus, you know, like that never happened. I wasn't super excited about a worksheet, you know, but it was my encounter with maybe the students in that class, my catechist or whoever it was. It was somebody that accompanied me, somebody who looked and said, I know who you're, I know your name and I know who you are and you belong here. That's, that's what we need. We don't need more workbooks. And then sure. Great. Teach people the faith after that. If that comes from a workbook, I'm not a fan, but like maybe that works for some people. Some people really love that kind of cognitive knowledge, but there's all these ways that we come to know God, self and others that is not through cognition alone. And so why is that the primary mode of instruction? That's my question to ask. You know, if you think of the most profound encounter of your life of faith, when you, when you felt God's presence I would be challenged to hear someone who was not in the natural world, someone who did not find God in a conversation, in a relationship, in reflecting on their life. I would be, and sometimes it comes, like once you have that moment of evangelization, once you feel the spirit, you know, moving in your bones, yeah, maybe you're reading, you know, Augustine or Aquinas or something, you're like, oh, this is so life-giving. Sure, great. But is that the first few encounters? I don't know. Maybe for some people, but not for a whole ton of people. You know, I don't want to dismiss anybody's walk of faith um, ever, but, you know, it's not predominantly done through cognitive reading and recitation. You know, it's, it's some profound moment in your life where somebody then says to you, have you ever considered that a moment of faith? Have you ever considered that an encounter with God? Shares their own story with their encounter with God and then journeys alongside you to say, well, did you ever hear the prophets when they did this? Did you ever hear about Jesus when he was doing this? You know, the woman at the well, Syrophoenician woman, like all these stories that we have when he walked with the disciples, you know, he didn't, <laughs> we, we like to talk to, about the road to Emmaus by skipping a lot of really important steps. Like the way I've heard it told so often perpetuates this catechesis model, this this kind of instructional model, and it bums me out terribly. <laughs> you know, where they're like, "Oh, Jesus accompanies them." You know, walks walks on the road with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, walking away from Jerusalem. They share their life, and then he opens the scriptures. I was like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa!" A couple big steps were missing there, guys. <laughs> You know, and Pope Francis made this a very explicit when he wrote his encyclical on young people, Christus Viva, Christ is Alive. And he said, you know, he gave, Christ gave of his time, one of the most precious resources, he gave of his time to listen. And they were walking away from Jerusalem in the wrong direction, in all the metaphorical ways, in all of the real ways, you know, walking away from their faith, away from Christ, in the wrong direction. 
And he planned to go farther when the disciples said they were ready to turn around. And that's when they had that encounter. You know, like he was walking alongside them the whole way. He didn't just crack open scriptures out of nowhere. They made the decision, you know. And so when we retell that story, I think it's important to get those details in there. Well, and I think of the people in my faith life, especially as like a young person, a youth minister, and then my own peers and our pastor, people who were very like open, who had were ready to like kind of dig into big questions that we had about the church or te- church teaching or the meaning of the church or just what our lives are supposed to be about. Um, and I, I think of those, again, those, those people, and you kind of mentioned it's like th- those sh- sharing of those stories, yeah. like who, whose story did you hear? And mm-hmm. I just wonder like, how do we, how do you make that move to kind of setting a whole, a whole parish's kind of way of being right. around the kind of, of mentorship accompaniment, telling those stories away from the kind of, you are a vessel, I will fill you with knowledge. Like, right. How does that happen? You know, it, it, it's, it takes time. And that's the biggest challenge is none of this is fast because we're changing people's models of ministry and faith. We're changing what they think it means to be a person of faith. A lot of times, you know, especially intergenerationally, sometimes the older generation just says, why doesn't the younger generation just get it the way we did? We came to mass, we did what we were told. Why aren't they, you know, we did that. Why aren't they doing that? You know, so it takes, and you can't just come and bring a program in and be like, all right, now you're, you're all going to think and do differently. Like that's ne- that never works for anybody. That's not systems change. You know, like that's the, the worst practices in, in changing systems. But, you know, and so what, what does help is, continually sharing stories. And I firmly believe the synodal process is is going to be the, if people can really look at it as not just this thing the Vatican's doing right now, but as a real way of being church, then I believe we have a good chance, which means encountering, listening, and discerning. You encounter young adults, you hear their stories, and you listen deeply to them. And then they listen to your story, like creating very quality, you know, quality, safe spaces to share without judgment, you know, and that takes curating, that takes selecting the right people and then doing it again and doing it again with more people. You know, it's like the, I don't know if train the trainer is a good vision for that, but you know, once you've created a good, facilitated a good listening session, then those people know what it feels like to be listened to, to not judge, to refrain from speaking and to share concretely their own stories using their own eye language and things like that, then they can go and facilitate a session of the next group of people, or they can invite people in to say, you know, what we did with young adults is, you know, I was working with a group before this, this is a synodal process of listening before this current synod on synodality was happening. Um, it was all in kind of response to the synod on young people in Christus, Christus Vivit. Um, you know, so we, we worked with ministry leaders to try and re-engage the young adults in the community. Um, um, and so I, I did a facilitated listening session and you have to, you know, you have to cut it down to, you have to make sure no one's chiming in, no one's judging, no one's talking over one another. It has to be well facilitated for people to feel they can be vulnerable. Um, and so we, we worked hard on that in that session. And then those ministry leaders were then going to go and ask what they thought, what they thought were affiliated young adults, the ones that they knew in the community that would come in and listen to them. And they said, where should we go? And some of them did listening sessions in their homes. Some of them did them in a, you know, a Starbucks or a coffee shop or whatever, um, wherever the young adults felt comfortable, which is not always church, which is something to remember, um, or the parish, you know, grounds or whatever, the school grounds. Um, And then when they spoke with them, 
And they really did this deep listening and they said, what's your experience of church? How has the church let you down? And what can we do moving forward? Like those are like three, three questions. What's your greatest experiences of your faith? You can do church or faith. You can change your questions, however they work for you all. You know, and when they did this, the young adults said, they said, I, no one has ever asked us that before. We went to Catholic school our whole lives and no one has ever asked us what we actually thought of the faith. We didn't think anybody cared. And when somebody started to care and listen, then they're like, can we come back and do this every couple of weeks? Can we, can we do this more often? Can we have dinner in your home? Can we ask you questions about the faith, about life? Like they wanted to be mentored and accompanied. And they were like, this was glorious. Let's do it some more. And then they were the ones that were going to say, you know, I have a friend who's left the church completely, but they might really appreciate this. I'll give you their number and you can call them, you know? And so that's how we kind of go like one by one to, to try and reach out to those that have been hurt by the church, you know, and, and it's a beautiful life giving process, but then you have to discern what you do with all of this. You know, what does it mean? Because when we came into that session, it was a lot of like, Oh, I think this is what we should do. We should have an event for all the alumni. We should do this. We should do that. And it was kind of like talking across people and what have you. And then once they started listening to the young adults, they were like, Oh no, what are we inviting them back to if they were hurt by this community to begin with. So with all, what do you do to repair the community? How do you know? And so some of the ways, one of the strongest things I would say is making sure on staff or somehow like wherever your context is, that somebody, that there are people there that are paid or, or recognized to be strong advocates of young adults and that might be a young adult minister, you know, it depends on your context and what you would call that person. But that's the person that becomes the go between when listening starts to break down. You know, when, when, when the older generation says something like, you know, we don't want to give up the soup kitchen because young adults are so transient. What if they come and go and then nobody's going to be running it after that. And, you know, we just, we're going to hang on to it till we die. You know, we're not going to let go of this ministry and pass on the reins because, you know, they move around so much and whatever. And when you have somebody who is trained, well-formed, and understands the lives of young adults that can come back and say, well, do you know so-and-so, this young adult, name the person, don't, don't talk in generalizations, name the young adults that you know in your community, you know, that they're really struggling to find work right now and they're living on their parents' couch or whatever else. And so that's why they move around as they're looking for work or because, you know, they work in service industry, they work as paramedics, they work, you know, that they, they're not around, you're not going to see them at mass on these days. They might come to Monday morning mass, but they have to work on Sundays. And so having somebody to tell these stories to people in the parish, and then as soon as you do that, there's a, there's resistance still, but a lot of people are like, oh, I didn't know that. And it's not because you told the story. It's because you told the story with the name of the person that they know, you know, so they can see that person in their mind's eye and say, oh, that's what they're going through. And so even if you can't get them together for a, you know, kind of a, a very strong non-judgmental listening session, you know, because those are not easy to, to curate, you can at least be sharing those stories with people to start like bring like kind of just bringing down those qualms that people have those assumptions that people have about young adults that are not always true or they're just misguided you know and they make people assumptions that we have that are not fully tested and fully fully tried out can just lead to misunderstanding you know and that misunderstanding leads to gaps in intergenerational ministry and things like that so it's probably a really long answer but <laughs> No, we like, we like long answers. Oh, good, you know? okay. we, we can, we can go, we can go, right that's, 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 <laughs> which is the beauty of the podcast. Though. Like we, we can, we can, we could go for hours. Um, but, uh, and I, I do, I wonder 
too when thinking about some of this is that like a lot of this is like it's a, we can't wait necessarily for folks just to show up um and we as a church like are not very good at finding people if it requires more than a bulletin announcement which feels like yeah and again i've worked in a church i've worked in a diocese like i i I know, like it's even, we're not really set up for that. Like we're, again, the kind of old history, like you go to the parish that's in your neighborhood and you go there because that's the obligation. And if there's a new parish that gets built like in the fifties and now you live in that parish, then you show up there the next weekend. And that's just, it's kind of what you do. And your social life is around this parish as a family. Um, but right. So some of these young adults maybe who are coming to the listening session, I imagine like we're at a lot of our churches, we're not seeing them. Like if you were, if I had to make a list of people in their twenties and thirties who, who I'm seeing at church, I might not have a very long list. Yeah. Like, so what, what have you seen? Are there, have there been any ways that you've seen or talked about where, how do we get out of that mode mm -hmm. of, if we put it in the bulletin and no one shows up, then like, then what do we do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I do think it starts with like, what are you communicating in your bulletin? You know, like, are you, does this look like a robust community that a young person of all walks of life, you know, a young person with a family, a young person that's married, a married couple, an individual who's not married, you know, someone discerning religious life, all stages of your life. Does this parish look like a robust place where someone who is a young adult would get involved? You know, do you have social justice ministries? Are you worried about caring for creation in the environment? You know, are you, does Black Lives Matter to your parish? You know, like, are you, are you on the cutting edge of, of the issues that are pertinent to young adults? You know, is there, is there some kind of like food pantry soup kitchen? Are there ways that young adults can look to your parish and say, if I was a part of this, maybe I'd be making a difference. Like, think of that. If I was a part of this community, it's possible I could make a bigger impact in this community. You know, one of the things that we talk about in LIM is, is when we talk about pastoral leadership in organization and parish administration is, you know, looking at your institutional realities, is your church a good neighbor in its community? We don't think, we think a lot about programming and religious ed and sacraments. Do we think about how we're reaching out to people in the community, you know, crossing lines with social services and things like that, and just saying, you know, how can the church be a, a resource of pastoral care, you know, and, and, and support, you know, how do we refer people that need counseling or some other care to, you know, other, you know, institutions locally? And so does, does your bulletin look vibrant, I would say, you know, and, and so instead of trying to say like what program and event can we get them to come to do, do how does your parish look to them <laughs> you know like like from the outside you know looking in how does it look and you know what are your are your homilies still live stream people were so eager to stop live streaming masses and come back in person and i understand that because there's something about being in the pews and there's obviously something much more robust about receiving communion you know in person obviously but there are still people that are traveling there are still people that are infirmed there are still people that can't get to the physical or because they're very worried because they're, they're caring for someone in their life that can cannot be exposed to some kind of a disease no matter if it's COVID or flu or anything you you know, and so, so to take that online, you know, option of worshiping away from them is really kind of extreme for some people because they can't, you know, for whatever reason, they can't always be in person at mass. And you won't know that unless you start really asking the people in your community what their needs are, you know, again, synodality, <laughs> um, you know, so, so it's, and, and so from there, and like, what I always say is, 
you know, once you can get like a small group of young people or their parents, maybe, you know, if you know parents in your community that they have young adults and they, if they live there, you know, like start really talking to people and saying, you know, where was Jane? Where was Joe? Who was, you know, whatever, are they in college? Did they move away for work? You know, are they around? Can we, what can we do to still support their faith life? Just asking that question will bring a floodgate of, of interest from people. And that might not translate into some kind of formal program right away. You know, what we're finding is, is especially from that recent CARE report, is that young adults are forming community. They're forming small Christian communities or faith communities outside the parish. So they're doing it when they're interested. So it's not not possible. You know, it's just... They haven't been given, you know, like, and when they do it, it's because maybe they can take on those leadership roles. Maybe they, it, it appeals to every interest that they have, you know, and if all we have is sacramental prep in our parishes, I don't know what we're even offering, you know? And so I would say we would start by saying from the outside, looking in from your live streams, your homilies, your, your parish bulletin, your website, you know, is it easy for a young adult to see themselves at that community and maybe making a difference in that community or feeling just supported in their faith. Like not every young adult is into social justice, but a lot of them are, you know, some of them are ecological justice and, and what have you. Some of them just want to develop their faith and there's nothing but the eight o'clock in the morning rosary or Bible study for the retired folks. Cause they don't, have jobs to get to. <laughs> so that's the time of the week, you know, like, and if you see something like that, you're not even going to try. I'm not going to, you know, I, we have jobs. We're not going to be able to make the 8 a.m. Wednesday Bible study, you know, and, and so just really looking over and talking with young adults when you do it, you know, and like I said, if you, if you can only think of a handful, find those, listen deeply to them and ask them to name a few more and then just keep finding more, you know, talking with parents, grandparents that say, you know, you know, my, my grandson, you know, he would, he could, he could get so much from this, but he doesn't come. Well, maybe invite him to have coffee. Your parish boundaries aren't just the, the brick and mortar of your church by canon law. Look at your, your diocesan maps. It might include the Starbucks. It might include the coffee shops. It might include people's houses, you know, so your parish is not just your church. It's your geographic location. And are we, are we supporting that geographic location, people that live in that area, you know, and start talking with other churches because, Gone are the days of parish boundaries anyhow. You know, there are a lot of folks that try to go, you know, to their, their geographic parish location, but there's a lot who don't. You know, they travel for whatever priest, whatever ministry, whatever it is that they're going where they want. People are, and we're all used to it. You know, if anybody ever shops on Amazon, you know, click it, click a button and it's showing up. Like we get what we want pretty fast in life. And that's kind of the way society has curtailed itself for us, for consumerism, consumption, whatever it is, just whatever we want, we can get it. You know, a lot of people can with, with means, you know, and so that's what we're used to. And that's what people are doing with their churches, you know, so they're going to get what they want out of their churches. And maybe that's a particular priest's homily or a particular ministry, you know, that's offered at certain times. So what do you do to work with other parishes? You know, can you, you offer multi, you know, events that cover, you know, the span of an entire, you know, part of a diocese or whatever it is. Sure, it takes work, but there's people willing to work. You just have to meet them where they are to, to get them on board. A lot of this, though, as you're saying, like, it's not, you can't, like, there's not a silver bullet program. No. And I can tell you, too, no. from experiences in, uh, in diocese or in church, it's like, there's that people trying to sell those silver bullet programs or, like, the hunger of, like, could we figure something out that if we did this... Yeah then this would work for us. Yeah. But some of the stuff you're talking about does seem to involve like a longer term cultural yeah. shift. And that's a lot. Like what, what are some of the, uh, the 
tangible steps toward that that you've seen, whether in your own parish experience or for some some of your most inspiring students, things like small steps even that people have started to do in a way that starts to kind of reorient a culture um, toward accompaniment community, those conversations, storytelling, listening. Like what are some of the things you've seen that are not programs, but have so, started to have some impact. You know, they're really, if you think about it kind of in, in you know, my academic bubble of my mind, they're, they're methods, you know? And so, so if you have a method that works, it, it can work across cultures, you know? And, and so it can work across contexts, you know? And, and so two methods that I love, obviously the one that we use in LIM, <laughs> you know, which is our method of practical theological reflection. And so I, w- I was talking with a group of ours, a LIMX group in Orlando last night. Um, and they said, you know, what do we, what do we do when these major issues come up in our parishes about, you know, gender and identity and things like that? And I said, listen, the church has had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of responding to the signs of the times. And I said, and we taught you this in the program. You start with a concern. Practical theology starts with human experience. It doesn't start with theology. You know, it finds out what is theological about human experience. So start with your concern. Figure out all your assumptions about that concern and then start testing them out. Look to the Catholic tradition to see what it has said in the past about how to handle this. Look to your personal ministry. Who are you in this? How do people perceive you, first of all? How do you come across what your communication skills like? Do you shoot people down when they give you new ideas? Like you really got to uncover your own, you know, your own self-actualization is a big piece of that. And how, you know, like how people perceive you that you might not understand. Sociocultural, what's going on culturally with, with the people in, involved in your concern? Institutionally, what are the barriers that people are experiencing with this concern, with your structures, with your institutional structures, school, you know, church, whatever it is, you know, and then looking to the, you know, God's creation tells us a lot of things. It's our primary teacher, you know, that we can look to understand so many things just by looking out in the patterns of nature and going against that, like like the whole idea of differentiation and subjectivity and communion, you know, that 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 we're all interconnected with one another and that, you know, to thrive, diversity means thriving. Like we cannot, we cannot thrive monoculturally and that's the natural world teaches us that, you know, and so what are all the ways that we can learn from those, those things and then come up with a pastoral plan. And every single time you have a concern, you go through those steps, you become a practical theologian and you go through those steps. And then when you develop a pastoral plan, when you say, I've taken all of these things in, I was totally, so this is what we do in our capstone course. So many of our students, they're like, I was so wrong about my first concern. Like my original concern, I was totally missed the mark because when I talked to these people and I sought a deeper understanding, I was like, that's not the concern. The concern is like five deeper than that. We can't even address that concern, you know? And so then once you develop what you're going to do as your next steps, then you have to go through it all over again and say, did this work? You know, like, what do we need to do next time? So that's one, you know, a method of, of that praxis, that rhythm of reflection and action is a really powerful one because you can do that wherever, whatever your context is. Like, I can't tell you how to discern. You have to discern with the people, you know, and, and do pastoral planning with your people, you know. Um, and then the other method is is the synodal process. And, and Pope Francis said that there's, he's got three adjectives defining synodality, which is list, encountering, listening, and discerning, you know. And so who do you, and like sometimes with, with the method of practical theological reflection, um, you know, the pastoral circle of like see, judge, Act is, is kind of similar. And people reference that a lot. But 
but the seeing part can go wrong and the judging part can go wrong. Like you can, you can stick to your own assumptions when you see it, you can just pull out some data, say, this is what's true for my group and then make some, you know, do some real good, you know, analysis of that and make a pastoral plan. Did you ever really uncover who you were in that situation? Did you talk to people? You know, like the seeing part needs to be a lot more explicit if you're going to use that as a method too, because that it works. You just have to be really, really detailed about it, you know? Um, but to the synodal process of encountering, listening and discerning that, that also has tremendous fruit in a lot of places. And you have to figure out, I just did our summer Institute. I was presenting on these three, three themes of synodality. And when we left, I said, I can't, again, I can't, everybody kind of wants a silver bullet. And I was like, you ain't going to get that from me. And I hope you don't get it from anybody, (laughs) you know, because what works in one context may not work in another Um, because everyone is so different and diversity should be, you know, should be honored and, and respected in that capacity. And so, you know, encountering, who do you have to encounter? Who do you go to first? Who makes the decisions in your context? Is it, is it you? Is it, you know, your pastor? Like, have a robust conversation with somebody about what is concerning you in ministry with young adults and say, you know, I've heard these things. Let's try this out. Let's try some listening. And maybe that's your first listening session is just with your parish community, you know, parish staff or something, you know, and then from there, take what you've talked about and turn, you know, and, and really like said your story and what was on your heart and then say, who do we need to listen to next? You know, and, and then, come together with one another and discern together, prayerfully discern. And, you know, that whole Jesuit piece is really good for this. You know, what St. Ignatius taught us about, you know, what brings you consolation and what brings you desolation. Pay attention to your emotions. Pay attention to what's going on around you. Pay attention to your conversations and what's going on when people are sharing their lives with you, you know, and, and when you discern what's giving you joy, hope and sustenance and what's giving you anxiety and stress, you know, consolation versus desolation and find ways to move into that space of consolation with one another. And from there, you can do some program. Maybe it is a program, you know, because programming gathers us communally, you know, whereas, whereas some of these other methods gather us individually, you know, and so there's a place for communal gathering and there's a place for individual accompaniment, you know, so it's not an either or some people are anti-programming. There's a great place for that. If you have done the work to get to that place, if you have done that encountering, listening, discerning, if you've done that testing, you know, of your initial understanding and practical theological reflection to then develop that program, you can't just pick a program off a shelf. You can't just say, I've got a great idea today. I'm going to make this new confirmation program. You know, like it can't, you know, like there has to be robust dialogue with people in your community about their needs. And then there has to be discernment with them. And so, how do you encounter those people? Where do you go? Who are they? You got to start making a good list, you know, and then figure out what it takes to listen to them. What's it going to take for them? You know, I had a a student of mine, she said she was going to try this and and she was doing faith formation and she wanted to talk to parents. You know, a lot of parents are young adults too, you know, and she, she said, I, you know, invited them to talk to me about their challenges with the programs, you know, and a lot of them said they would rather not, they didn't really feel safe enough to talk to me about what they really felt. And I said, Ooh, honey, you got a lot of work to do. I said, okay, now, now, and that's, that's why this isn't easy. This is not easy. And that's why people I think hesitate because when you start listening, you might be implicated by what you hear, you know, and that's, 
And that's happened to me. And that's hard. You have to sit in, in maybe a place of desolation, you know, and that's where that discernment comes through to get you more towards that space of consolation to say, all right, maybe we made some missteps in our program. Maybe I said the wrong thing. Maybe I came across the wrong way. Where, where does healing start? And maybe it needs to start in you because what you heard from someone hurt you, you know, but then how do we, that's why a robust prayer life is so important, you know, it's hard to hear things that people say about our programs, about our churches, you know, and that's kind of one of the reasons people don't want to engage in synodality is they're not ready to hear what people have to say. And some of that's misplaced. Some of it is like, you know, like I've heard of, of bishops in some dioceses telling their pastors not to hold listening sessions when it came to, you know, names being released about the scandal and things like that. And I thought, who says don't listen? Because they were afraid. They were afraid of what they were going to hear. They were afraid of how the sessions would go. And you can't, that's desolation. You can't do things out of fear. You know, like no good comes from acting out of fear, acting out of anxiety, acting out of anger. You know, um, you should listen to those emotions. You should figure out what they're trying to say to you and what you should learn from them. Um, but how do you then move forward in a, in a healthy way? You know, and so, yeah, again, I could go on all day. <laughs> Well, the way you talk about discernment and the way Pope Francis does is clearly that's a big Ignatian yeah. word, right? Buzzword. And we're not the only ones who have discernment in our charism, but we do like to talk as if we are sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, there are some, I think I have heard some very Ignatian themes in, in some of your both talking here. And then uh, a talk you gave um, that we'll link to that's uh, through our Sunday visitor yeah. uh, program they do. Um, but thinking about some of the those tools, again, some of the, the ways that of approaching or some of these like spiritual gifts we have, I think Ignatian spirituality is like super relevant today just because it is, it's very practical. It's about finding God in the experience that not, not necessarily, I think you said this in your talk, like not necessarily bringing people to God, mm -hmm. but seeing where God is at work already in their lives and helping them to see that and encounter that but not that they have to necessarily do something completely different from their everyday life, but that God is there. And just thinking whether it's ways of seeing things, approaching, you talked about some discernment, but you yourself have some Jesuit education background, certainly some time. Uh, and just what are some of those tools maybe from the Ignatian tradition, ones that we could really lean on um, that might that might help us kind of uh, approach uh, faith this way? You know, it's, we, these words, like you said, they become buzzwords and cliche, but, um, you know, it really is that Jesuit value of finding God in all things. And so, like, what if you woke up every single day and that was your goal, to find God in every single moment of every day? What, like, how would your life be different? How would, how would your impact on other people and on creation be different? You know, like, like to me, that's just, and so I've learned this over the years about my own spirituality and it has come out because I try, you know, I, I do a lot of writing on this. So writing, it helps me to process too, you know, because I try to embody my vocation as a religious educator. And I'm, I'm very, very serious about that. And it's, and I've uncovered that while I am pretty well Jesuit trained, I went to Fordham, um, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, it, it, uh, figuring out your spirituality apart from, you know, like just because I, I have a Franciscan bent, you know, I have, I have, there's redemptorist in me, there's Dominican, you know, like I think we, we, we have these, the depth and beauty of our spiritual traditions, but the one I always come back to is finding God in all things. I find my spirituality finds God in relationships. Like I can read and listen to Father Greg Boyle 
And every single page, like if you've ever read his tattoos on the heart, I'm like marking it up and highlighting it and just like throwing it around and like basking in it like a real weirdo, you know, because I'm like, he's finding God in every encounter with someone in his ministry, like all the time in their mundane situations, somebody's in a JC Penney's trying to like buy clothes and something almost becomes a super heated, awkward situation. And then it diffuses itself with laughter. And he found God in that moment. And I was like, so did I the way you wrote it, you know, like, and so, but I find that and I, I share that with as many people as I can, because they're, it's not always in a church. It's not in a ministry. It's not talking about Jesus all the time. You know, I was shoulder to shoulder with somebody at the Irish Channel Parade. So, you know, we got Mardi Gras. We got the parades here. You know, in some of these moments when you're with strangers next to you that you've never met before. So, you know, the Irish Channel Parade um, just breaks down because, well, they're Irish. And, <laughs> and so we're just waiting forever and it's getting hot out. And like, are there, is it coming? Like what happened to the rest of the parade, you know? And so I'm chatting with the guy next to me and he's older than I am. And he had come in on a bus from like Alabama or something like some several hours away. And, you know, says, Oh, where are you from? And I was like, well, we live here now, but I'm originally from New York. Well, that gave him all of the assumptions on the planet as to who I was. I'm this Northern Yankee, hate guns, you know, whatever must have loved Obama, you know, like whatever he needed me to be is what he was deciding in that moment. And I just listened and I did what Parker Palmer tells us to do. And I turned to wonder and I thought, because if I can't do this in this moment, you know, literally after having a beer, standing in the sun, waiting for an Irish parade, and this guy is making all these judgments about me. And I don't, and I, I just don't believe in letting bygones be bygones and going your separate way. Like that doesn't lead to transformation. That doesn't lead to new learning. I just don't, in my bones, I don't believe it. I, sometimes it works or sometimes it doesn't work and you, you can't dialogue across difference. And I thought, if I'm going to try and ask my students to do this in ministry, I'd better be able to do it in my life. You know, and I sat there and I listened and I took in what he was saying about me having met me for five minutes, you know, and, you know, and I just, I turned to wonder and I said, I wonder what would make him think of these things. I wonder what experiences he's had in his life to think, to make these assumptions about a human he's never met just by saying I came, you know, literally said I was from New York. And so then I started, so I, I, I tried to process that while I was listening to him. And I said, you know, I, I have experience teaching in public schools. And when I lived in Florida, you know, this is my experience of the chart. You know, we got onto education and charter system and this, that, and the other, and how broken public schools are. And I was like, well, not really, you know? And, and so, but I just used my own concrete experiences to share that with him. And by the end, and we just kind of kept going back and forth. And I just said, well, in my experience, and I gave him story, I shared my story with him, you know, and, and eventually he started to share his story with me and not these headlines from, you know, the news feeds or whatever. And, and by the end of that, he was like, oh, we've got a bathroom over here on our bus. Come on, you can use it and we'll hang out with you. Like we were the best of friends after that. And I thought, holy cow, how did this just happen? Like how I found God in that moment. Like you don't even know. And I, because I tried to make a different disposition. And so to me, that is that was, you know, that's finding God in all things. That's a weird Irish channel parade broke down. And I found great joy in that moment with that man that could have been so otherwise. And I think that's why I got joy is because it could have been otherwise, you know? And so instead of leaving disgruntled, we left joyful and joy comes from God, you know, happiness here and there, but I felt joy. I felt good in my heart after that experience. And so that's my Ignatian temperament. <laughs> 
<laughs> and so that's why I'm so big into story sharing and listening because it transforms you. Because when you listen to someone, you hear where God is active in their lives. And that's just real Jesuit, <laughs> real Ignatian. <laughs> that's great. I, I, uh, I think that's a good place for us to, to stop. Yeah, yeah. I think there's some really good stuff here and I love that story and I love that as a closing for us um, and just ways of thinking our listeners are in all kinds of places and all kinds of contexts and some in jobs in which they get to enact some of this and others are volunteers or others kind of on the edges of the community. And uh, but I think there's a lot of food for thought here about how we, not just how we do church, but how we go about living in the world, as you're saying, uh, these are things that we're, we're, can be part of our our calling as people to find all God, God in all things and all people. And, um, and I, I think that challenge of what, if you live that way, right. really live that way. Right. Um, it's not easy, you know, like I have days where I don't do it, but I try, I try better the next day. That's the whole examine, you know, like how did you, you know, how can you do better tomorrow? That's that last part of the examine, you know? So, yeah. Well, thank you for bringing the Jesuit bona fides here at the end. Uh, we'll link to uh, your at least website where people can learn more about what you all are doing. We'll link to that video I mentioned, uh, which is awesome. Uh, and uh, yeah, thank you so much again for taking the time. And uh, and yeah, a lot, a lot to chew on here. Um, but but good as we think about uh, yeah what how we might uh, come together, work together on this synodal path yeah. the Pope has called us to, to uh, be who we're called to be, which is a community that welcomes and praises and does all that good, good stuff we're called to do. Amen. So, <laughs> thanks so much. Thanks, Mike. This was wonderful. Thanks for having me. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>